Welcome to Talking Fraud, a podcast series by MIAA, providing you with informal insights on all things fraud. This podcast was recorded in November 2022, and all information within the podcast was correct at the time of recording. Episode 1, NHS Fraud. What's the problem? Hello and welcome to MIAA's Anti-Fraud Services first podcast. Uh, Hopefully this will be the first of a series of podcasts talking about uh, fraud in the NHS in particular, but we may widen it out to other topics uh, in future episodes. A little bit about background from ourselves. Uh, We're um, the senior members of MIA's Anti-Fraud Service. Uh, Introductions. We've got a head of service here, Daryl Davies. Do you want to say a little bit about your own background? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Just like to stay, say from the outset how pleased I am that we're actually here now in the studio recording this first podcast. It's been quite a while since we've had this in the kind of planning stages and it's great to put it into practice. And I'm really excited about being here with you and with Claire as well to, to get this underway. As you mentioned, I'm head of MIA's anti-fraud service. Um, I've been in the post now for probably seven or eight years um, and our role very much is around working with clients in the NHS and the wider public sector to both curate an anti-fraud culture and also to investigate our allegations of fraud uh, and see those through to the the conclusion, whether it be, you know, criminal outcome or whatever. I'm sure we'll talk about that in more detail. But yeah, very excited to be here and looking forward to today's podcast. Yeah, should be fun. Claire, Claire Smallman. Yes, so my name's Claire Smallman. I am a Senior Anti-Fraud Manager with MIAA. I've worked for the organisation for 14 years. Um, Some previous experience, I was a benefit fraud investigator. So for 17 years back um, for the Department for Work and Pensions. So very much of an investigation background, but also excited to um, be here today for this podcast. Thanks, Claire. So a little bit about myself. My name's Paul Bell. I'm also a Senior Anti-Fraud Manager with MIAA. Uh, my background, probably been involved in fraud, financial crime investigations for getting on for 25 years um, in the public sector, the private sector, uh, conducted investigations in the UK and overseas. So I think between the three of us, we've got quite a bit of experience, um, particularly dealing with NHS counter fraud, but also fraud in the wider sense as well in other areas of the public sector and beyond. So today's first episode uh, of this podcast, we've called NHS Fraud, So What's the Problem? And I think what we're going to do by way of a a background introduction, given this is our first podcast, we're just going to talk briefly about how NHS counterfraud came about, um, the origins of it, the background to it before NHS counterfraud was put in place as an entity. And then we're going to bring it up to date in terms of what does it look like in 2022. So any sort of observations? uh, You've been around in the NHS quite a while, Daryl. So before (laughs) NHS counterfraud came into place in sort of 98, 99. What's your experience of how fraud was dealt with before then? Well, I suppose linking to that, I'm not, I should say at the outset, not my personal experience, but fraud isn't a new crime. And you can actually, I was looking this up on Google, I don't know off the top of my head, but um, essentially the first kind of recognised fraud was committed in the year 300 BC, which, you know, goes back quite a considerable Hmm. bit of time. And that related to an insurance fraud, believe it or not, and a fraud that, you know, insurance fraud, which we still see today. So essentially a merchant in ancient Greek um, was insuring his boat uh, to carry corn to to another port. And he hit upon the idea of the fact he was going to pretend that the boat had been sunk in a storm and was therefore go. this wasn't going to happen, but he was going to then take the, the corn to market, sell the corn, and then also claim off the insurance that the that the boat had been sunk and that all the, the uh, produce had been lost. So that's one of the earliest ex- examples of fraud and not something, uh, you know, probably, as I say, that I was around for. But, but yeah, it shows that fraud is, is a longstanding criminal crime. 
um, and in the public sector, very much in, in previous years, fraud is always kind of left to internal auditors or those people who had perhaps an interest in pursuing an, an interest in the kind of fraud and, and uh, raising the awareness and the culture. Uh, within organisations to pick that up. And the people weren't necessarily trained investigators. So it was always very an ad hoc approach. And I think, you know, as we've seen uh, with ourselves, the job that we do over recent years, the, the frauds have become far more sophisticated and the attempts have increased quite considerably. And I think there was probably uh, a perception of back in the 90s that, you know, something needed to be done more formally to, to investigate and pursue fraud. Because especially in the public sector, you know, the money that's lost through fraud is the money that's taken away from, from where it should be going, whether it's to providing services through local authorities, whether it's treating patients through the NHS. So it became much more of a priority. And I think there was some work, wasn't there, done, Paul, a study back in the 90s, looking at uh, the potential cost of fraud to, to the public sector? Yeah, I, th I think there was a culture, certainly probably starting around 1992, um, looking at accountability of public funds, um, just in terms of uh, the public purse and making sure it could be fully accountable and justifiable. And that kind of built up, I think, through the early to mid to late 90s and culminated in, I think it was around about 1998, when the National Audit Office was tasked with actually looking at the extent of fraud and irregularity in obviously one of the biggest public sector areas of the UK, the NHS, and identified potential losses of around about two billion per annum. Um, so I think that was a sort of the driving force and the motivation as to sort of what kicked things off and formalising the anti-fraud structure in the public sector. And I think prior to that, it was very much, as you say, sort of piecemeal, ad hoc. There was no national coordinated strategy. It was very much left to individual auditors. I do recall myself, I was working in the public sector for a period of the 1990s, um, not in, in health, um, but in a different area of the public sector. And, you know, we had a few fraud referrals coming through to us and it was literally scrabbling around in terms of, well, okay, what do we do next? Do we go straight to the police? Do we look at it ourselves? What was your experience in a different sector as well, Claire? I think, you know, coming from the Department for Work and Pensions and the, the frauds, I think they did have, you know, process procedures in place and it had been running for a long time as a as sort of a fraud function. So coming into the NHS for me back in 2008, um, was a, it was a bit of an eye-opener around that the policy, the procedures that were in place within the Department for Work and Pensions weren't necessarily um, in place. You didn't have the same powers when you came into the NHS. Um, and fundamentally, even now, you know, 12, 14 years on, it, it's a case of um, you the, the types of frauds that we get across the table, you know, you may never have seen one before within the NHS. We are the biggest employer in the UK, so we are going to have a whole host of various types of fraud cases. And I think that for me, um, coming from a benefit fraud background where benefit fraud, you know, is, is quite similar, just depends on what benefits people are, are, um, are receiving. But within the NHS, it was quite eye-opening the amount of fraud and the amounts of different types of frauds that um, are within the NHS that need investigating. And certainly, you know, um, we've made some good grounds, even from since when I've started around the NHS mm. um, fraud investigation and detection. So bringing it back to uh, this National Audit Office review, I think it was about 1998, that I think really was the impetus to sort of pull things together and come up with some kind of coordinated strategy. So on the back of that, the Department of Health decided it was going to create a dedicated NHS counter-fraud uh, structure. Um, and at the time, they they 
they put certain mechanisms in place and they brought in a gentleman called Jim G, who'd been dealing with counter-fraud in, I think it was Lambeth Council in the Greater London area, and he'd had quite a, a degree of success. But he was essentially the first head of the NHS uh, counter-fraud function, which I think back in the time was called the NHS counter-fraud and security management function. Yeah. Um, and that was the original, uh, it's gone through a few name changes, which we'll we'll cover during the podcast. Um but that was the original name, and you'll notice from that name as well, there was a security management element to it, which no longer exists today, but we'll, we'll cover that. So that was the sort of the original sort of foundations in around about 1999, 98, 2000. Uh, I did my training back in 2002, so I think I was one of the, the first ones. I think Roger, who previously worked with us and has just recently retired, had one of the lowest number counter-fraud Identity cards. Yeah. I think uh, Roger literally did go back to 300 BC. Yes, he probably <laughs> did. Yeah, he was probably involved in that original investigation. He's probably the corn thief. So I, I, I think between the three of us, we were probably sort of quite early on in the process of going through the accredited training. And we'll talk a bit more uh, in, in either this episode or the next episode around, you know, what's involved in being a counterfraud specialist in the NHS and the training that you go through and, and things like that. But... Jim was essentially tasked with putting together the, the structure, putting together a central team, and then obviously cascading that down into all the um, NH, uh, NHS organisations in England and Wales, having a dedicated local counterfraud specialist, which is you know where we are today. Um, as I mentioned, it's gone through a number of different name changes. Uh, 2017, it became NHS Protect. Uh, sorry, up to 2017, it was NHS Protect, uh, and now it's the NHS Counterfraud Authority. So. There's at least three name changes mm -hmm. in the 20-year period. But fundamentally, it does today what it was set out to do. Well, its original remit was back in 99 and 2000. And I think it's really good that we have that strategy in place because, you know, under that those older um, arrangements, very much a, a lot of the kind of internal fraud, not necessarily benefit fraud perhaps, but the, the allegations that were made against maybe individual employees or people associated with it, with the council or the NHS, never tended to, to go through mm. a, a formal investigation process mm. or, or didn't end up in, in court. And that could be quite frustrating really for those people involved in, in undertaking those, those investigations. And again, as I keep, we'll probably keep harking back to all the way through uh, these podcasts is the fact that, you know, this is public money that, that we're talking about here and, that, and we need to get that money back into the system as, as much as possible. And especially, you know, in the current current climate, we can't afford to be losing uh, lots of money through, through mm. waste and, and, and criminality especially. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think... Um an observation for myself, I mean, worked in the private sector and the public sector, is the focus is very different. There was a real structure um, in NHS counter-fraud when it was set up, focusing on prevention as well as recovery and investigation of fraud. So there was the preventative side of it as well as the reactive investigative side of things. And I think, you know, back in 20 years ago, there was probably only really the NHS and the Department of Work and Pensions that really had focused, dedicated counter-fraud functions in the public sector. I think, would that be your experience? Possibly revenue and customs? I was going to say, yeah, HMRC, yeah. Um, you know, and local authorities as well. So there were, there were a number and obviously, you know, the work that we've we've done there, the work we do now sort of covers third party organisations as well. So, you know. And I, th I think sort of bringing things up to date as well, you know, we've just seen the creation of the Public Sector Fraud Authority, you know, which its, its remit is to coordinate counter-fraud activity on a consistent basis across all public bodies, government departments and public agencies. So, you know, that's where it's moved to. And you got, I suppose you could comment on the fact that it's taken 20 years for that single coordinated mm. 
cross-government approach, and it's only just been launched in August of 2022. And that, it, it, one of its key remits is to sort of pull together and coordinate the, the, the fight against public sector fraud. Absolutely. And I can see, you know, there's been times, hasn't there, when we've done investigations and we have fallen foul of third party organisations not wanting to get on board and share that. That's had a negative effect on mm. what we do as well. So, you know, all for uh, promoting that and hopefully we'll make that work a, a lot easier for us. I think it's about time as well, isn't it? Because if we're being honest, this should be brought in many, many years ago. You know, as we We've already mentioned your fraud has been on the rise for for decades now, and it's getting far more more sophisticated. Mm. And have even though we've had the the NHS count fraud strategy and, and people working at various organisations to try and combat fraud, the the best way is to have a national strategy, a national agency that kind of uh, you know addresses this area and makes sure that we're all oper- operating in a in a coordinated manner. I mean, I remember years ago, frauds would be very simple to detect. You know, there used to be a lot of these um, kind of letters that would come through from purporting to be from an individual from a foreign country saying they'd come into an amount of money and wanted access to somebody's bank account in the UK to be able to transfer this cash. And they would offer an individual, you know, an amount of money uh, to facilitate this transaction. But essentially, you know, as we know, it's just a big con to get access to somebody's bank account. Mm. But you could very quickly tell from those letters that they weren't bona fide just by looking at the, the grammar, the spelling, etc. But but nowadays, the extent to which, you know, fraudsters are going, fraudsters are going to, to try and deceive people, mm. setting up fake website that looks like PayPal or, or Amazon or whatever, whatever it may be, you know, just shows how sophisticated these groups are. Absolutely. And I suppose, you know, if you think about it in a way, they may put all this effort in, but if you can target an organisation and maybe um, secure one invoice that may be worth 500,000 or, or a million pound, if we're talking about, you know, big corporations like the NHS, then... That from their perspective, it's been worth putting that putting that effort in. So mm-hmm. we do need a national strategy, and and uh, to be able to and a national body to be able to kind of really focus on some of these high concept you know crimes that that we're seeing at the moment. It's in- interesting. Yesterday, I had a phone call uh, from an organisation, and it was around one of the international nurses that had um, been approached via Instagram, and um, from one thing to another, as made her use her bank details for Bitcoin and had lost £6,000. Um, and that was just yesterday. So as you were saying, you know, the ways that people commit the frauds now are going via social media channels, things that mm. people, you know, are on all the time looking at, um, you know, and, and that individual now's £6,000 short in a bank account and provided that information to the fraudsters Um Obviously, unknowing of what was going to happen, but yeah, so he's going to probably struggle, I would assume, to mm. try and recover that money back. And I think wherever you know we we uh, hear about various types of frauds that are being committed, and we're sending out alerts and trying to raise awareness about the fraudsters are always trying to be one step ahead of that, aren't they? And looking at some new different way of utilising social media technology to try and you know elicit funds from from indiv- mm. extract funds rather from from individuals Absolutely. Uh, so it's, it's becoming harder and harder isn't it and i think people sometimes are more relaxed as well when they they're online they're at home you know they'll get something through on an email or an instagram or a facebook notification they're more likely to maybe click on something or or accept something that perhaps if they were approached directly through face to face or verbal contact perhaps they wouldn't be so willing to to give over certain bits of information that can be used against them. Absolutely. And I think also with the current climate that we're in where people, you know, are struggling for money, mm. then anything that comes in that might be able to, you know, increase their income, that's going to, you know, be something they might want to consider, but obviously not really looking into the implications of it. Is it genuine? Or am I yeah. actually going to end up losing money through this? So, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not good when you get those types of referrals and, mm. 
obviously, you know, we've, we forwarded them on to Action Fraud, um, an organisation that, you know, um, then takes on these referrals and decides where, who should investigate them. But yeah, and I think this individual, because they were an international nurse as well, you know, didn't quite understand the the, the sort of rules, the regulations and the, the sort of processes within this country um, and was almost an easy target yeah. for somebody, which is, mm. you know, very sad. She's individuals working all the hours to get the money and to pay the bills and then fraudsters just in the blink of an eye take £6,000 from the bank account. I think it's, you know, really important what you said there about kind of the social environment that we find ourselves in and that can influence, you know, fraudsters and individuals kind of responses to being um, targeted by fraud. I mean, already I've, I've seen this week examples of texts that have been sent through to to individuals related to the, the energy price cap. Yep. So essentially the government's saying each household is going to get £400 off their bill over the next six months. And these texts are going out telling people you're due this refund. Please click on click on this uh, link below. Um, and people think, oh yeah, well, we do we do that we do that money. So they'll click on it, provide their personal information, bank account details, and before they know it, mm. you know their, their bank accounts will be, be cleaned out. And it just shows again how the fraudsters are scanning mm. things that are happening in wider society. You know, initiatives that are being brought in by the government and thinking about ways in which they can, you know, use those to their own ends to to get money out of people. Yeah, absolutely. And similar, a member of my family had. Um, received a text from the Royal Mail, you know, you've, you're not quite, you've got a parcel that needs to be delivered, but you need to pay a bit more. And quite often we will have parcels that are due to be delivered. And my member of the family, you know, clicked on it, provided all the bank details from their bank card, paid their 72 pence, I think it was. Um, and then the next day gets a call from what she thought was a bank saying that somebody had tried to use her bank card in a shop. Um, but actually it was the fraudster and and she was convinced and, you know, um, that it was the bank. And she was like, they had my, my card number, my address. And it was only from talking to her and she, she did realise towards the end of the conversation and put the phone down, but it was all associated to that link she clicked on the day before. Mm. So the fraudsters did have the details off a of card because she'd used it to pay the 72 pence. So, you know, and anyone could fall foul of that if you are expecting a parcel. And as you say, this is the way that these fraudsters then just take advantage yeah. of individuals and, um, you know, take money that's not theirs. Absolutely. I've got a kind of personal experience of that recently. So we went to, to Amsterdam, we split up. So we're, myself and this other guy went to uh, the Ajax football stadium to go on a tour around that and uh, our partner's wives um, went to a museum and there was a museum where you actually bought the tickets online before you could go in. You couldn't actually purchase it at the um, at the uh, at the venue. So my wife went online to to what she thought was the the museum website, but it actually wasn't. The pop up link came up, and she put her details into that to pay for the the tickets. The tickets didn't mm. come through, and about ten minutes later, she got a phone call from from Barclays fraud team. So you know she'd been yeah. scammed for that. So that was highly embarrassing, you know. And I did make that clear, you know, <laughs> that she was letting me down as the wife of a MIA's head of fraud. But uh, but it just goes to show. You you know, how easily that, that can happen, mm. you know, and you can just be off your guard slightly and, you know, you can soon become a, you know, potential victim of fraud. Absolutely. So I think, listen to those sort of observations, your personal observations that you've just given. I think we'd probably all agree that the number of ways you can commit fraud is probably quite finite, but the mechanisms by which you commit those frauds has significantly changed in the last 20 years. You, you know, you, you were talking to all about the letters. I've inherited a load of money, uh, you know, I need access to your bank account in order to get it out of the country, et cetera, et cetera. 
you know, what used to be a letter is now an email. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can remember first using the internet back in around about 1997. Um, but in the last 20 years, all the mechanisms we now have to communicate, be it through texts, WhatsApp messages, emails, social media, you know, all of those mechanisms are now being used to perpetrate frauds uh, in the NHS and beyond. You know, it's it's probably about 50% of what we look at is what we would call cyber-enabled fraud. And we'll talk about that, I think, in a, in, a, in a bit more detail in a future episode as well. And it's amazing how much information people actually put online now, whether it's using yeah. things like, mm. you know, Facebook and, and Twitter, but also, you know, uh, what you would think maybe a, a business related to like LinkedIn, where people will put all kinds of information about where they work, how long they've been there, what their job role is, what their main responsibilities are. And an example of, of where that was used in a, in a fraud is actually in a local um, Merseyside trust whereby um, the fraudsters were attempting to have the bank account details of a supplier changed to a, to a fraudulent bank account. And to gain the confidence of the individual working for the NHS Trust, they went online um, and looked up details of, the, of this supplier and individuals who worked for this supplier and found somebody who worked in the accounts payable department, so the people who would process the invoices for the contractor, and actually used that information then to, to set up a false uh, email account, uh, false job titles, etc., or to get the confidence of, of somebody at, at the, the trust to then pay out that invoice. And that invoice that was eventually paid to this fraudulent bank account was just under £1 million. So illustrates the point I was making before about mm. how you put all that effort in, but actually if you can get one invoice for 900 odd thousand pounds, then from a fraudster's perspective, it's been worth it. And you know, once that money goes into that fake bank account before, before you know it, it's transferred overseas. Mm. So the chances of ever recovering that, that money or making a, a prosecution for the people who are behind that are very, very slim. Mm. Do you think anything's particularly changed in the last 20 years? Do you think we're pretty much doing what we were doing 20 years ago, other than accepting the, the sort of the the use of media technology to commit frauds. Do you think the strategy that we're applying today is, is very much similar to the how it was 20 years ago when it was set up? I think it, it predominantly is. I, I think the broad principles of, you know, trying to instill an anti-fraud culture within an organisation, and by that I mean, you know, raising awareness of, of what is fraud, what, how can you potentially be targeted by fraud, what you should do if, if you are the victim of fraud, and then looking at how we strengthen controls, processes, systems within an organisation to try and prevent or keep fraud to a minimum has remained the same and probably needs to, to remain the same. Probably the way in which we go about delivering um, those messages and doing that work has changed slightly. So again, you know, we wouldn't have been doing a podcast, would we, 20 years yeah, ago yeah. Um, as a way of informing people. We wouldn't have been using maybe software uh, to identify um, bogus transactions, for example. You know, mm. we'd be doing everything very manually. And I think, you know, we have changed our approach, but the fundamentals of the strategy remain the same and probably will largely remain the same um, going forward as well, in my opinion. What, what do you think, Claire? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's the case. And obviously the, you know, the environment that we're in at the moment with all the recent... Um, pandemic has also made us have to sort of change the way in which we work mm. um, you know no face-to-face -face presentation so we've had to look at how can we get the messages out to um, members of staff within the NHS around fraud um, during you know a crisis um, and, and not only that it's getting the messages out but making sure that people then are reading them are, are reading the mm. comms we send out so I think yes we we're always changing but fundamentally you know it, it's it's the same it's just new ways of working isn't it that yeah I think uh, you know one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is you know we acknowledge the fact that the fraudsters are quite sophisticated probably more organized than they were 20 years ago um, 
you know, there's still opportunistic fraudsters, but there's a lot more organised criminal mm-hmm. fraudulent activity, and they are using multiple multiple mechanisms to commit the fraud. So, you know, we need to keep up with that and use multi- multiple mechanisms to get the anti-fraud message out and advice and guidance to all our clients and, and beyond the clients as well, really, I think. But coming back to your point and sort of trying to pull things together for, you know, concluding this particular episode of the podcast, I think your point around, you know, what we do today is pretty much fundamentally very similar to what, you know, we were doing when Jim G set this up 21 years ago. Um, and the strategy, which we'll talk about in the next episode in a bit more detail, you know, works very well. It's it's a good strategy to apply. And we'll cover the the key elements of that strategy, as I say, in in the second episode. Um but I also think it's it's worth pointing out as well, you know, other areas of the public sector are following suit, you know. Um, public sector fraud authority has now been created, but a lot of what we do in the NHS is being replicated in, in the wider public sector as part of that ongoing approach. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think fundamentally we're probably, we're not changing what we're doing significantly. I think some of the information, some of the intelligence we have access to, um, some of the cases, some of the successes probably changing with yes we are doing things the same way but we we do also need whilst we keep the kind of same uh, approach we need to think about maybe delivering it slightly differently don't we and being mm. more effective in the way in which we do that and i think that's kind of what we're all kind of striving to do by doing things like the podcasts and, and yeah uh, i think you know in terms of like the fraud examples and the f- types of frauds they don't ne- they've not necessarily changed in the time that i've been here um you know I think certain things are coming more to the forefront than that was. So you sort of, for example, you working while six was always the sort of biggest fraud within the NHS. But now, you know, the mandate fraud is one of the most significant ones. Um, so I think certainly um, in my time working in the NHS, the, the types of fraud haven't changed. There's just lots of them, lots of different <laughs> types of ways mm. people can defraud the NHS, unfortunately. And, you know, there's been some... We've got some successful cases for MIAA, um, but also nationally, there's been some good um, examples of cases as well. Okay, so that's been really quite informative. Um, I think we'll we'll go into a bit more detail in the second episode and hopefully in future episodes, we'll talk a bit more detail around particular types of fraud, some of the cases that, you know, we've worked on or have have been in the public domain uh, nationally over the last 20 years. So if you want to find out a bit more about Uh, our podcast, which is called Talking Fraud. You'll find them on Spotify, Apple, uh, other main uh, podcast sites as well. Um, You can also find more information about how we uh, perform counter-fraud activities and the work that we do on the MIAA website. And we've got a dedicated fraud section on there. And this is the first of a, of a number of episodes that we hopefully. hope to hope to cover, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Depending on viewing figures, uh, <laughs> listening <laughs> figures. Yeah. Depending yeah. on listening figures, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we hopefully any, we'll be back. Whether we win any awards as well. <laughs> well okay. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks. We'll see you next time. You can find MIAA's Talking Fraud through all the usual podcast platforms.